If you have read Mark's gospel, you know that it moves at a pretty good clip. In fact, one of Mark's favorite terms is the word immediately. Right? Immediately something happens in his book. And so you can probably figure out that has to be a reason why his is the shortest of the gospels. He wanted to move through things rather rapidly. So that's what makes this particular story found in Mark chapter 5 so interesting. It is the longest healing story in Mark's gospel. And it gives us a chance to kind of settle into it a little bit. Now, of course, the, the bad side of that is the story's not all filled with positive things. There are things in it that definitely are cringeworthy in some ways, I believe. But however that is, Mark wanted us to settle in and listen to this story carefully because of its importance to his gospel message. Now, the context for this story we've already read, and it kind of goes like this. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And with that thought, after Jesus rescues his disciples from this storm out on the sea, comes this story. Again, answering the question asked so clearly, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care? Does Jesus care that we are perishing? Whether, when, when, whenever we're not flourishing... Whenever life is not the best for us, does Jesus care? When we are really suffering, does Jesus care? So when we read Mark chapter 4 and we see people who you know, belong to Jesus facing physical threats and Jesus saves them from this experience, we know that Jesus cares. But what about when we're experiencing mental health challenges. Does Jesus care? Does he care then? Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, reads like this. So they, Jesus and his disciples, arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit, came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with the chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. 
And then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into these pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, now fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. And so the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Before we walk down that path, hello, Electra. It's good to have you here. I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah. We praise God that, uh, that you're doing better, and we will keep you in our prayers. We want you to continue to thrive. So, good to have you and your family. So, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is repeatedly telling people, don't say anything about this healing that he had just, you know, given them. He just healed them of some terrible thing, and he says, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Yet, here Jesus gave the man directions entirely the opposite. Go home to your family and tell them everything. Tell them everything. Jesus not only healed this man of his various problems, but Jesus also, it seems like, gave him a reason for living. And I believe there's nothing better than having a reason for living. To have a cause that's bigger than yourself. For when your cause is only as big as yourself, there really isn't that much to live for, it seems to me. The Gospel of Mark goes on then to hint at the success that this man had in his missionary endeavor when he was sharing Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. We read in Mark chapter 8 of the feeding of 4,000 people, of course, plus all of the you know, women and children who have also been there in attendance. And 4,000 people, I mean, I want you to think on that. When you read through the book of Acts and you read about them adding to the church daily, and at one point there's a group of several thousand, right? This man succeeds beyond that. When Jesus comes to his area, the area he had been proclaiming, everything that Jesus had done for him, this man has 4,000 men alone 
come listen to Jesus. Wow. Wow. Obviously, God bless this man's efforts, despite the fact that he knew Jesus for such a short time. But there's a feature in this story that oftentimes we don't get around to mentioning. I'll never forget the first time I became acquainted with this feature. It wasn't so much in this story because I didn't think about it so much then. But I was pastoring a church district in uh, Reynoldsburg, Ohio. And uh, I went to go into this room where I was hoping to get some supplies. And I found that the cabinets were all locked up. And I couldn't understand it. It was a small church. It's not like we had a bunch of problems with theft or anything like that. And I thought, man, somebody's got to get me a key or something because I need to be able to get some stuff out of here. And when I asked the Pathfinder director about that, she said, it has nothing to do with theft. We have someone in our group who takes box cutters, screwdrivers, other sharp implements, and she uses them to cut herself. This is the first time I'd heard of someone practicing cutting. Now, since that time, I've heard of it numerous times. And I have to admit, it's, it's troubling to me that, that people would deliberately go about cutting themselves. And yet, at the same time, as I read this story, I get a little bit of an idea about how God feels about people who practice what we call self-harm. Self-injury, in this case, cutting, Jesus showed this man so much compassion, and yet we're told that he was using sharp stones to cut himself on a regular basis. Now, there are a number of ways to deliberately injure yourself. You can cut, you can scratch, you can burn, you can carve, you can hit or punch yourself. You can pierce your skin with sharp objects, like putting holes in yourself. You can pull out your hair. There are a number of ways in which you can hurt yourself. And people have practiced these things for a long, long time. Let me illustrate to you. If you've never thought that this subject was scriptural, it is. It goes back a long, long time. In Leviticus 19.28, it is addressing, I believe, the Levitical priests. And it says, you shall not make any gashes in your flesh for the dead. Probably talking about Israel in general. In Leviticus 21.5, they shall not, speaking of the priests, make any gashes in their flesh. 1 Kings 18.28, you remember that story where the prophet is on Mount Carmel? And he's facing a bunch of prophets of Baal. What do the prophets of Baal do? They cut themselves, according to 18, verse 28, 1 Kings. Jeremiah 16, 6, both great and small shall die in this land. And then it talks about common practices. They shall not be buried. No one shall lament for them. There shall be no gashing, no shaving of the head for them. Well, why would he bother mentioning these things if it wasn't fairly common practice? I mean, it is pretty common practice to bury people, isn't it? Right? To lament for them. But then we find out that cutting yourself was also part of the practice. And then you'll remember we did a small series 
once on Jeremiah from about what 40 to 44 or something like that and in 41 verse 5 we we read about 80 men who arrive from Shechem and they come into the community and uh, they have their beard shaved and their clothes torn and they have not listened to God who said don't do this they have not listened and their bodies are gashed now you can say, well, they have some reasons. Their, their country has been attacked. It's been taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In, in 47, verse 5 of Jeremiah, how long, the prophet asks, will you gash yourself? In 48, 37, every head is shaved, every beard cut off. On all the hands there are gashes, on the loins sackcloth. Obviously, deep, deep mourning, and one of the ways in which the mourning is being carried out is by cutting. Hosea 7.14 is the last one. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. They gash themselves for grain and wine. They rebel against me. Now, there may be more texts than these, but these are ones I could easily find in Scripture. And it turns out, in most cases, that cutting has to do with an unhealthy way of coping with, you know, emotional pain, intense anger and serious frustration so I guess you know when you look at a situation like that if you've ever been tempted to ask yourself who would ever love a man or a woman a boy and a girl who would deliberately cut themselves the answer should come back very clearly from Mark chapter 5 Jesus would Jesus would love such a person deeply love them and I don't want you to forget that because that's an element of the story that many times we pass on by. Who would give such a person a larger-than-life cause to live and even to die for? Who would dare to give such a person a task like sharing the gospel to the world? The answer is Jesus would. Jesus would do that. Jesus loves people. He loves people whether you practice self-injury or not, but if you do practice self-injury, he definitely does love you. Don't think he doesn't. And Jesus wants to give us all an awesome reason for living. Now, when we look at the transforming power in this story, I mean, the man is wild and uncontrolled. I mean, you know, but he's changed. He's terrorizing the neighborhood, but he's at peace. He's naked and he's clothed. He is not exactly all there, but now he's in his right mind. He's an outcast, but he's going home. In this simple chart, we can see just how powerful God is in transforming our lives. When we're a mess, God is not. The story is also filled with some interesting stuff that kind of captures our imagination. If you like reading things and comparing and contrasting them, this story is filled with some interesting thoughts. Here is a contrast between Jesus and the evil angels, and it's sharply drawn. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind and he says to the waves, Be quiet, be still. And suddenly the wind stops and there's a great calm. And all of the people in the boat are saved from the water. They're saved from drowning. And then we get to the story we were reading today. And what do the evil angels do? They drown the pigs in the water. The same body of water. 
that Jesus just rescued people from, right? Now, that's a pretty sharply drawn contrast. These stories occur back to back, so it's kind of hard to miss that lesson when we just keep reading. And that sort of makes me ask the question, if the demons drowned the pigs in chapter 5, who was trying to drown Jesus and his disciples in chapter 4? Have you ever asked that question? Who, who was trying to drown them? I mean, it just happens the next day. Then, of course, there's an interesting comparison. We read, you know, the impact of Jesus on nature. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then we read about the impact of Jesus on a human being. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. His life looked like a serious storm before, but now it has changed. Yeah. Both, it seems to me, had been wild and destructive, yet now both were where God wanted them to be, where he intended them to be all along. And then, of course, there's this interesting contrast. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Specific Greek word used there. Let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission. Same Greek word used in chapter 5. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus refused. Here, they're given permission. Here, no. The answer is no. Hmm. Then, of course, there's this one. The group of people that live around the formerly you know, possessed man beg Jesus to leave their area. Why do they do that? It isn't because they don't want Jesus healing demon-possessed people. It's because they don't like what happened to their source of income, the pigs. Let me read the text. It says very clearly, they went out and talked about the man and the pigs. The pigs, big deal to them. But then, of course, it's uh, interestingly contrasted with Mark 5, 19. Uh, the demons, the man who had been formerly possessed by demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. One group of people say, Jesus, get away from us. The next guy says, Jesus, I want to be with you forever. Is that possible? Why these different reactions toward Jesus? Get away. Can I be with you? Now, we've already touched on how this story, I think, is good news for those who practice cutting or any other form of self-harm. It's also a great story for highlighting a massive change, you know, the great transformation that Jesus can make in your life and in my life. But how does it speak to someone who suffers from some form of mental illness. In the past, behaviors associated with mental illness were all supposedly caused by demon possession. Mentally ill people were considered to be weak-willed or flawed in some way. The mentally ill were considered violent, so violent that they needed to be feared and segregated, restrained, and yes, even executed. 
And stories like this one in Mark 5, you know what they did? They were used to prove or even reinforce that all this stuff was true and should be done. Now you remember quite some time back here, and then also at a Walla Walla camp meeting, I talked about how the Bible teaches us that sin is a species of insanity. Right? Now having said that, we need to know that it is a species of insanity. There are other forms of insanity. There are other forms of insanity. It doesn't mean that a person who has a mental health challenge is necessarily some great sinner. That's not the case. And so it seems to me like that should make us rethink everything we might believe about mental health challenges. Especially, you know, believing if we might that they are all related to demon possession. It's not true. But there's more. If you were to read widely in the field of biblical studies, you might come across a book like this. It's entitled, This Abled Body. Rethinking Disability in Biblical Studies. There is an entire group of biblical scholars who are dedicated to looking at stories of disabled people in Scripture. Did you know that? And they publish books on this subject. This is one of them. And in uh, this particular book, in the chapter that deals with Mark, chapter 5, they talk about how uh, there has sort of arisen two medical models for dealing with mental health. One of them is a medical way of looking at it. The other has to do with social. The medical model, of course, sees disabilities as a loss of function, a loss of some ability of a particular body part. The disability is a medical or a biological condition. And then the goal becomes, how can we cure this? How can we restore the person's ability to them? How can we bring the affected part back into normal range? And in contrast, the social group model says a disability does not reside within some particular body part of an individual, but rather it has to do with the way in which society creates physical and attitudinal barriers that limits a person's ability within society. Now, I think both of these models have really helped, helped us as a group of people here in the U.S., deal with folk who have mental health challenges. Deal with ourselves when we have mental health challenges. For example, the medical model has led to new drug therapies that restore proper brain chemical balance. We've known that this is the case for a while, and the result, I think, has been amazing. You know, many people who were before placed into institutions were removed or they never went to an institution at all because these medications would basically cure them or, or help them so much that it wasn't necessary to segregate them in any way. The social group model has led modern day society to make a lot of changes to confront our prejudices and to change things so that it is easier 
easier mentally, easily physically, uh, a lot easier by emphasizing the principle of autonomy. The person's right to be self-determining. The person's right to exercise a high degree of freedom and independent living, to have equal access to all parts of the world. The pictures that you see here on the slide, I took this morning of my house and my neighborhood. And what do you see? Grab bars, right? Lever-handled lever locks. Walkways that now have a nice steady decline to them with all these raised little bumps so that people who are blind or otherwise impaired can tell that they're at the end of the street and need to be careful about crossing it. These two models, I think, have been very useful. And they've improved life for, for people who have mental health challenges. I would say 50 to 80% of the people who have these various challenges have been helped. That's the good part. The bad part is it means that 20 to 50% of those have not been helped by the medical model or the social group model. That their problem is deeper or different. The community's response to the demoniac and to the severely mentally ill has often been the same. Let's restrain them. Let's restrain them. And we read in Mark chapter 5 that no one could restrain this man. They tried over and over again. Now maybe, you know, because he was howling and wandering and practicing self-harm, maybe they did this, they restrained him in order to keep him alive. I won't judge them too harshly. I question whether that was their motive, but nevertheless, maybe they were trying to keep him alive. Maybe they were simply trying to end his public nuisance. You know, somebody who's wandering around is a bit of a nuisance. And maybe they were trying to keep themselves safe. Maybe they thought this man, the way he acts, we're not sure how he's going to treat us. Even today, restraints are still common, common approach to dealing with the severely mentally ill. Before the 20th century, here in the U.S., institution of those deemed mentally ill was guided by a particular principle. Do you know what it was? Paternalism. Any of you know what that means? What that means? Paternalism. I'm going to stand in place of your parent, and I'm going to deem what is best for you. And what's best for you is for me to segregate you. Paternalism. That's the way we looked at it. I'm going to provide some benefit for you. It's justified that I do this. And as the worst of the horrors of mistreatment within asylums came to light in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Deinstitutionalization became, you know, the policy. It became the norm. We closed a lot of these institutions because we saw how poorly the people inside were being treated. And what we decided was we needed a new policy. One that said freedom from restraint means that unless someone poses an imminent danger to others or themselves, 
those who are ill are to be treated in the least restrictive setting possible. And paternalism changed and became autonomy. How much freedom can we really give all these people? It's what they deserve. When we look at Mark chapter 5, and we see this man who's sitting there now fully clothed and perfectly sane, these details are given to us in stark contrast to the way the man acted before. What we later find out, of course, is that this man has found life and he's found community again. And these all appear, I think, to us very satisfying. We feel like, okay, this is good. This is how all mental illness should be taken care of. But what about those people who have been taken to exorcisms by their family members, maybe, and prayed over, feverishly prayed over, time and time again, and yet they were never healed? What's the matter? Weren't they good enough? Didn't they have a strong enough faith, some family member weak in the faith? What of the person for whom the latest drug, you know, miracle drug, what if it doesn't work for them? What if it doesn't help them in, in any way? Where is God in these situations? Where is God? I mean, is it not true that we read the man had struggled for a substantial amount of time with a legion of demons? Where is God during all this time and with all these demons? The community had often restrained him, we read. And while the man had endured an entire legion of demons inside him, the pigs lasted mere moments when allowed to enter them. Wow, what was going, inside, inside, going on inside of this guy? What kind of battle was he facing day in, day out, night in, night out? I think this story can help us understand the enormity of the battle the mentally ill are forced to take up. And I think oftentimes they have a strength of will and uh, courage that goes unacknowledged by us. It's unfortunate. I think this story also says some powerful things, though, about God as well. But what we're saying is that, you know, um, trying to remain sane is a massive undertaking. It's a massive undertaking on a daily basis for many people. Many people struggle long and hard, and they have a necessary dependency on, on meds that do two things, usually flatten them, flatten their characteristics, they're not as lively, or it ages them prematurely, and sometimes even beyond recognition. What might this story tell us about mental health? Well, a couple of things. Highlights community, community with God, fellowship with God, fellowship with human beings. That uh, those who have mental health challenges should not be in isolation. They need to be told to go and tell their stories. That God is not absent. This is why the man was fighting to stay sane. And that compassion has a deep effect. And I want to say a few things about these points. 
Medicines alone don't often work. But when they do work best, they work best because they are not done in isolation. They are done along with people helping those who have a mental health challenge. Okay? When those things are combined, when the medicine and the friendship of others is combined, then those meds are most effective. When we think about going and telling and the command given to this man to go out and proclaim the gospel, we realize that a vital part of the gospel's message has to do with mental health challenges. Go and tell what God has done for you is part of the gospel. And of course, you know, telling the story of your release from fear and horror can reinforce your initial healing. It can foster connections between people. It can bring awareness to others that you have had a mental health challenge, and they might as well. And it can even create deeper peace. When I think about God not being absent, have you ever wondered how a, this man was able to endure three to 6,000 demons inside of him while the pigs died so quickly? What was it that kept him alive during those years of fighting against demons? That many, that strong. What was it that kept him alive? Or should I say, who was it that kept him alive? It was because God was working in this man's life. The man didn't recognize it, maybe. The people in the community didn't recognize it. But God was working in his life nevertheless. The man didn't, the, even the disciples didn't, I think, recognize what God was doing, but Jesus did. He knew of this man's personal struggle with the demons. He knew that the power of God had enabled this man in some small, tiny way to fight back, to hang on to his sanity year after year. Perhaps I should say moment by moment. He was barely alive, but he was alive because God was in his heart working, though he did not know it. And I think this is true for everyone who battles depression or some other mental health challenge. Compassion has an incredibly deep effect. If you were to study Greek, you would know that uh, the expression that uh, we see in there, how merciful the Lord has been to this man, is what we call an aorist tense. It means a one-shot deal. In one moment, as it were, the Lord had healed this man. Now, what's interesting is the word for has done, it has a different, what we call, aspect to the verbal expression. And it talks about something that happened once and only once, but has a lasting effect. A lasting effect. So what we learn in this is that what God does for us, maybe just once, can continue on for good the rest of our lives, can have a tremendously long-lasting effect. Any single act, then, of compassion that you and I might engage in towards someone who is battling a mental health challenge, any, any one single act of compassion can have a massive effect. But what if we were to keep on expressing our compassion for them? What then? Deeper, 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 stronger effect. 
When it comes to those suffering mental health challenges, are we aligning ourselves with Jesus? Or are we still stigmatizing those who are fighting for their very lives? That's a pretty strong, powerful question. A couple questions. Are we aligning ourselves with Jesus? Or are we still stigmatizing? Making their situation worse? Let's pray. Father God, a number of us here have struggled, are struggling with mental health issues. We've been depressed. We are depressed. Perhaps we will be depressed. Others have had other forms of mental health challenges. And God, today we want to lift each of us up to you in prayer and just ask that you would bless us with sanity. Help us to hang on to the little we may have. And God, would you help us also to be compassionate towards those who are fighting this fight. Help them to continue on, to seek the best remedies possible, to give them the compassion they need, to not isolate them, to be friends with them. Help us to never forget not only how close we are to having the same problems every moment of every day or having them maybe already. Help us to never forget how vulnerable we are and how much in need we are of you and of the people around us 